says this. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And now a story that most of you are probably familiar with from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer, I always hate it when Jesus starts with that phrase. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down, <coughs> excuse me, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and you do likewise. Let's pray. Ah, Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Your word uh, can be a comfort to us, but at the same time, your word can cut us. It is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces us and convicts us and persuades us and moves us. God, I pray that your word will do all those things for us this morning, that uh, you will be glorified in all that is said uh, because you are the only one who is worthy of glory. And we bless your name and we give you praise. And we pray, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Amen. We've all probably heard over the years a lot of sermons preached on this particular passage of Scripture, the story of the Good Samaritan. I've heard this story turned into an allegory that everything has to stand for something. The Samaritan is Christ. The wounded man is us in need of a savior. The Jericho road is the world. The inn is the church and the two denarii are our sacraments of communion and baptism. It's all tied together in a nice, neat little package. But we have to be really careful. We can't make scripture say and mean what we want it to. And we certainly cannot make God look like what we want him to look like. Tony Campolo says God created man in his, his image 
and we are continuously trying to return the favor. Another approach to this passage has been to call it a parable. I'm not so sure of that. I've read some things that indicate otherwise, that suggest it's a true story. Jesus does not call it a parable. But it is a great story. It's an example we should follow, don't you think? It's, you know, help others, be kind, be a good neighbor, nice, warm, fuzzy stuff. And we all sing Kumbaya and go home. But it's not that easy. That's why the story is well known, however, because it teaches us those lessons. We even have good Samaritan laws in certain states that if you find someone injured and you try to help them and you're unsuccessful in that and they, their injury gets worse or they die or some such thing, they can't sue you. You're protected by the good Samaritan law. But I think there's more to this story than that. The more, <clears throat> excuse me, the more that I study this Jesus of Nazareth, the more I find him to be very confrontive. He is an in-your-face preacher. And he's particularly confrontive to religious leaders of the day, like this lawyer. Oh, Jesus was a man of varied emotion. He loved a party. He turned water into wine. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. He agonized sweat blood as he faced the cross. He cleansed the temple of the robbers and the cheaters when he was really angry. He had a lot of different emotion. But most of all, I find him to be that in-your-face preacher confronting us with the sins of our heart, with heart issues, particularly tough on religious people. I've always been afraid that if he came back today like he came the first time, I might not find him here. And he'd be condemning of us religious-looking, religious-talking folks. I don't like the thought of that very much at all. I believe, let me start that over again. If you doubt of the, pre the preaching of Jesus Christ as a confrontive preacher, just take a look at Matthew 23 when you go home today, in which he confronted the religious leaders and he called them frauds and fools and stupid and fakes. He was in their face. I believe the Good Samaritan is a story of race. And it shocked the lawyer and it shocked the crowd who heard the story. And it also really stunned the first readers of Luke's gospel because it confronted prejudice and bigotry at its core. Jews and Samaritans had hated each other for hundreds of years. Jews viewed Samaritans as half-breeds. They would actually walk 20 miles out of their way to avoid walking through Samaria. Think about that for a second. Some of you who've been to Israel or seen pictures of it, think about walking 20 miles out of your way in Israel just to avoid running into a Samaritan. It reminds me of a conversation I overheard. It's been a long time ago. Four ladies who played golf at a country club on the north side of Youngstown, but they all lived in Boardman and Canfield, and they were having a conversation about getting to the golf course, and they were talking about building a bridge over the south side so they wouldn't have to drive through the city. 
And I was reminded of Jews walking 20 miles out of their way to avoid going through Samaria. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And there's nothing new under the sun. In AD 51, people from the Samaritan village of Ganae murdered a couple of Jewish pilgrims who were on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Jews appealed to the Roman authorities, to the rulers for justice, but the Romans ignored them. A Jewish mob went to Ganae, massacred all the inhabitants of the village, and burned the village to the ground. That was in AD 51. Luke wrote his gospel sometime between AD 57 and AD 60. The Ganae massacre was common knowledge when the early readers heard or read the story of the Good Samaritan. The story shocked the people who heard it for the first time. For the Jew, the word Samaritan was similar to our N-word today. In the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus makes it very clear where he stands on the issue of racism, prejudice, or bigotry of any kind. Don't. It's not allowed here. Jesus, you see, is colorblind. Also, by the way, he's not white with blue eyes, as we so often paint him, because I'd like you to find me the last, tell me the last time you saw a white, blue-eyed Middle Eastern man, but that's just a passing thought. What I say to you today does not apply only to black and white, although I will concentrate on that particular issue. It applies to Jew and Gentile. The next time an anti-Semitic thought or word comes to mind, I only want you to remember one thing. Our Lord and Savior was born, raised, and lived a Jew. So the next time you think anything that's anti-Semitic, strike it from your mind and remember who he was when he walked this earth. This story applies to any type of prejudice or discrimination. Asian, Indian, Arab, Italian, Catholic, Pentecostal, rich or poor. I mean, even to dabble into politics right or left. It applies to any prejudging that we do. There is no room in the body of Christ. There is no room in the body of Christ for bigotry or prejudice. We like to sing, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. Somehow we lose that verse when we become adults. We are to be a people of mercy and grace. Prejudice is defined as an unfavorable opinion or feeling formed beforehand or without knowledge, thought, or reason. A bigot is intolerant, unthinking, and ignorant. Let's identify with the people in the story of the, of the Samaritan, but not the Samaritan or the wounded man. That's way too easy. First, the lawyer, the legalist who asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? He was probably well-dressed, self-assured, pious. I suspect he had scripture bound on his forehead. And when he asked, who is my neighbor? He anticipated it would be a fellow Jew because the priest at that time had misinterpreted Leviticus 19.18. The last person he thought of 
would be a hated half-breed Samaritan. You see, the lawyer was a bigot. And that shows up unsuspectingly in, in one of the last two parts of the story. We'll talk about that at the very end. But he was a bigot. He judged without reason. He was trying to trap Jesus. But the in-your-face preacher caught him. Look at the road, much traveled by religious pilgrims, people going up to Jerusalem. But it was a dangerous place. There were caves hiding robbers, and it was really a, a risky walk to take. You would think that the Jewish leaders would make the road safe, but hear this. It's easier to maintain a religious system than it is to improve the neighborhood. It's easier to maintain a religious system than it is to improve a neighborhood. I thought to myself, maybe it's easier for me to sit on my fanny in church than it is to do anything about my neighbors or the people who live three to five miles away. It's just easier to sit here, comfortable, air-conditioned, padded pews, all that good stuff. Maybe that's what's the easiest thing for me to do. The robbers? How can I relate to the robbers? Well, they stripped a man of his possessions. They stripped him of his dignity. They stripped him of his personhood. They left him laying naked in the ditch. Does our prejudice do the same when we look down on somebody just because we think they're less than we are? I have some experience with this. You see, I'm, I'm a recovering bigot. Maybe we all are in some way and at some time. We have preconceived ideas that cause us to reject people, to strip them of their dignity and to look down on them. A number of years ago, it's probably been 30 years ago, maybe 35 years ago, my oldest daughter brought a young man home who was a friend of hers, they weren't dating, he was just a good friend, and, and he walked into the house and he had really long hair and he had an earring. Oh, come on, really? And there was a time in my life that I would have given him one of these and been very inhospitable to this young man because he didn't look like I thought he ought to look. He didn't dress or wear his hair or his jewelry the way I thought he ought to. We can't do that. I can't do that. But we do it. We do it with blacks and with Jews. We do it with Asians, Middle Easterners, anyone who's just the slightest bit different than we are. And we have to stop it. Because you know what I found out? In this young man, I have had the pleasure of knowing for these 35 years or so, one of the finest Christian men I have ever known in my entire life. And if I had looked down on him because he didn't look the way I thought he should, I would have missed that blessing. Shame on me. Shame on me for ever letting that happen. Well, how about the priest and the Levite, the religious people? Are we like them? Too busy? with our religion to help. I mean, we might get our hands dirty. We could become ceremonially unclean. They were too wrapped up in themselves to get close enough to help. You can't help people 
without getting close. You have to get close and personal. These, this priest, this Levite, they walked by on the other side because they were bigots. And they taught it to anyone who would listen. I wonder if they taught it to the people who massacred the Samaritans in Ganae. I wonder if they had heard that from their priest. Our Savior and Lord, the in-your-face preacher, uses a radical example to confront the sin of our hearts. A hated Samaritan helping a Jew that he'd probably been raised to hate. A few years ago, a young white man, <clears throat> this is so hard, walked into a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, and murdered nine people at a Bible study. You probably remember that. Nine people because they were black. There were no riots, there were no burnings, and no destruction of property following that horrible act. The people of the church, that church, Mother Emanuel, AME, and the Christians of Charleston, black and white, came together. And you know the first thing they did? They prayed for forgiveness for the man who'd done the killing. That's who they prayed for first. And they prayed with each other, and they were reconciled, and they were united. This is radical stuff, this story of the Good Samaritan. This is Martin Luther King Jr. helping the leader of the Klan out of the ditch. That's what this looks like. This is a Jew helping a Nazi prison guard. Can you imagine the larger shock? The hero of this story is a half-breed Samaritan. Racism is a problem in America today. It's a big problem, and I think it gets bigger every day. Jesus says, go to Samaria, and Samaria is a place of racial and ethnic tension. Then Jesus says, go to the uttermost parts of the earth, but before you do that, you have to go to Samaria, and we haven't done Samaria very well. If the church, if Christianity is to have any relevance and impact today, we must confront racism. It's not a how-to problem with the church, it's a want-to problem. And we have to confront not just active racism, but those who are racially indifferent. Because you see, indifference to injustice perpetuates injustice. Indifference to injustice perpetuates injustice. If we're going to be agents of reconciliation, we have to understand the depth and severity of the problem. We need to know the history. Slavery was legalized in this country in 1641. A little surprise here. The first colony to legalize slavery was Massachusetts, not the anticipated South Carolina. Slavery caused social dislocation, family disruption, dehumanization. They treated human beings like objects to be sold. You can see reproductions of newspaper articles at a historic place in Charleston. Today, 40 Negroes for sale. Just think about that for a second. Dehumanization, treating a human being 
like you're buying a used car or a new car. Slavery was physically brutal. Children watched their parents beaten and lynched. Children taken from, taken from parents and sold. Husbands watching wives taken for sexual pleasure and breeding. Blacks could not vote, own property, bring suit, or testify in court. Most of them were not even allowed to learn how to read. It was an act passed in a southern state in 1840 that prevented blacks from learning how to read. When one did, and they began to have church with the Bible, they didn't have a complete copy of the scripture like you carried in here this morning or like sits in front of you in the pew. You see, sir, the master had ripped certain pages out. Guess what they tore out? Well, they tore out the book of Exodus. Freedom for slaves. Every time Jesus talks about freedom, they tore it out of the Bible. Every time the apostle Paul talks about freedom, they tore it out of the Bible. So what they had to read was very limited, if they learned how to read at all. In 1863, we had the Emancipation Proclamation, <clears throat> excuse me, and then the 14th Amendment in 1868, guaranteeing, guaranteeing all citizens equal protection and due process under the law. But in 1896, the Supreme Court up, upheld separate but equal legalized bigotry in a clean white sheet. And there was no integration until the 1960s. In the 1930s and 1940s, the government began to subsidize low-cost loans, opening up home ownership to millions. But the government underwriters introduced an appraisal system tying property value and loan eligibility, not to income, but to race. You build your wealth on the cornerstone of home ownership, and the government financed white flight. In 1935, Franklin Roosevelt wanted to pass the Social Security Act. In order to do so, he had to cut a deal with Southern senators. Excluded from the Social Security Act were domestic workers and agricultural workers. Imagine what segment of the population made that up at the time. Excluded from Social Security. This is the one that blows my mind. Oh, it's not tears. I'm, I'm not crying because, because I'm emotional about this. I'm crying because it makes me so daggone mad. 1944, the GI Bill was passed. 1944, nine million veterans received benefits. My dad went to college on the GI Bill. Four billion dollars to nine million veterans, all to the exception and exclusion of people of color. Remember you see those picture, pictures of the Tuskegee Airmen, a black Air Corps? they did not qualify for benefits under the GI Bill. Yeah, somebody here fear there's a little problem with our history? And, and our history molds us, our history shapes us. There has been progress. 
We've made progress, and I'm not saying we haven't. But let's go back to the Good Samaritan for just one second. You see, the Samaritan's love was unconditional. It was spontaneous, it was unqualified, and it was not limited by the rules of religion or tradition or prejudice. He just acted out of love. Scripture says, by chance a certain priest, and by chance means more than coincidence. What happened that day on that road was divine providence. God puts us with people and in situations to accomplish his purpose and to teach his lessons. Are we concerned about people? Or are we concerned about our own piety, our own religious education? If you truly accept the fact that Jesus loves you, then you are free to love as the Samaritan did. We have been set free to love as the Samaritan did because of the love of Jesus Christ. If we haven't looked closely at the Samaritan, we'd like to identify with him. I sure would, wouldn't you? But what is there to look at? He was supposed to hate Jews, but he didn't. As far as we know, he never got a humanitarian award. There was never an article written about him in the Jericho Gazette. We don't even know his name. No idea what his name was. We don't know what his lifestyle was like. We don't know if he smoked or drank. We don't know if he cussed. We don't know if he danced. We don't know of anything that he didn't do. We only know what he did. That's all we know. And he's known around the world. He is known around the world, not because of pious living, but because he gave of himself and he served sacrificially. Pious living does not attract people to the gospel. Sacrificial service does. You can't elevate yourself by demeaning others. Red, yellow, black, or white, you can't raise your level by putting others down. You only elevate yourself in his kingdom by sacrificial service. Sacrifice, not piety, attracts people to Jesus Christ. And this lesson applies across the board. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you ask yourself, who's my neighbor? Well, who's my neighbor? And better yet, how much am I supposed to love them? How much am I supposed to love my neighbor? Well. Whose money did I put in my pocket this morning? Whose clothes did I put on? Whose teeth did I brush? Whose car did I drive to church? Mine, mine, mine. You've been around here a while. I've heard me say before, I love you all, but I'm my favorite. It's the truth. How much do you love yourself? Well, that's how we're supposed to love our neighbor. That's what we're supposed to do. Can you put aside your judgments, your exclusiveness, your fear of involvement, your privacy, your hidden bigotry and prejudice to be available to love people? After this morning, there should be no doubt about where God stands on the issues of prejudice and bigotry. If you doubt, I challenge you to read Acts chapter 10 the book of Philemon, Philemon Galatians 3.28, 
in 1 John 2, 9 to 11. We need to take our blinders off and follow his commandment. They'll know who you are by the way you love. That's how they'll know. They'll know who we are by the way we love. Love your neighbor as yourself. We've come a long way. We've come a long way as a nation, but we've got a long way to go. Legal barriers have been removed, but we need to demolish psychological assumptions. For example, I have a good friend named David Gray. David is a black pastor of an all-white church in a little town in Ohio. David and I used to speak together at different churches back in the 90s, and we would introduce each other as my twin brother from whom I was separated at birth. We don't look a whole lot alike other than the fact that we have a bald head and a big beard. But here's the problem. When people see my friend David, they make certain assumptions about who he is and what he is. And it's not in the pulpit of an all-white church. There's a, um, another story. I've got some illustrations for you for a minute about systemic racism and white privilege. Say, fairly well-known black pastor attending a conference at the Ritz-Carlton in Naples, Florida, and he's standing in the lobby with a number of white pastors, and they're just kind of on a break in between sessions of the conference, and another guest of the hotel comes up to this Af big African-American man and says, can you tell me where such and such a restaurant is? And he said, no, I can't. I can't help you, sir. And the guest said, well, you work here, don't you? Hmm. A medical student, African-American medical student, has lectures, back-to-back -back lectures one morning in the same lecture hall, different professors. He goes to the first lecture, he goes out, he uses the facilities, he comes back and he sits down in his chair. And the new professor walks up to him, and, or before he sits down, the new professor walks up to him and says, when are you people going to get the light bulbs changed here? When are you people going to get the light bulb changed here? Think about that for a second. It's a football player who's a defensive back, and they've, just, they've won the Super Bowl. He's at a big Super Bowl celebration, and everybody's in tuxedos and evening gowns and stuff and all slicked up. But this is not a guy whose picture shows up regularly on television or in the paper. And one of the guests, one of the white guests, walks up to him and asks him to go get him a drink. Come on. We still have this problem. I still have this problem. We need to do some things about this because people see things and they make certain assumptions, prejudging based on race. At this point, Claude Alexander, a pastor in Charlotte says, I want, and I'm gonna say it to you all this morning, this is heavy, don't you think this is heavy stuff? And he says, I want to lift the weight off your shoulders. This is not meant to be a white guilt trip. And as, although I feel terribly guilty about what I've already said this morning, this is not intended as a white guilt trip. So I want you to turn to your neighbor, turn to the person sitting beside you, and I want you to say this. It's not our fault. Go ahead. 
Go ahead, turn to each other, say it out loud. It's not our fault. Go on. It's not our fault. Now I want you to turn to the same neighbor and say this. But it is our problem. It's not our fault, but it is our problem. Alexander again, if we're going to be the visible expression of Jesus Christ to a watching world, we cannot just accept the challenge to go through Samaria. We can't just accept the challenge to go to Samaria. We must accept the challenge to become the Samaritan. Jesus asked the lawyer, now who is the neighbor? Remember I told you the lawyer unsuspectingly shows up as a bigot? It's by what he says next. The lawyer says, well, the one who showed mercy. Sounds like a nice religious answer, doesn't it? But he couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He showed his true colors, no pun intended, by that simple omission. But he did say, the one who shows mercy. And Jesus tells him, you go and you do likewise. And I say to myself this morning, don't sit here anymore. You need to go, I need to go, and I need to do likewise. It's not my fault, but it is my problem. Let's pray together. Whew.